Great. All right, good deal. Okay. Yeah, we're super casual. And uh, again, I was calling you William a minute ago because I wanted to set you up. Yes, perfectly for, all right. For what me and Clark were talking about calling you for the rest of this episode. Do you remember, Clark? I have no recollection of this. <laughs> the, what's short for William? Oh, <laughs> it's pretty good. Yeah, well, we were going Bill and I'm like, he's got three. I was like three B. But then you yeah. came up with a better one. Billy Brent is a good name. Oh, I believe me as a kid, like that was always the kind of the joke. I'm from Kentucky, so it's like you know. Oh, there we Billy go. Billy Brent definitely was a. I think I might. I think my my grandfather's name is William, but he was called Billy. But he died like before I was ever born. But yeah. I, see, uh, Brent, I'm I'm from Mississippi originally, so I'm I'm right there with you. I get that whole the double name thing's big, and also I feel like every person in the South has a grandfather named William. I did. I, I, had, <laughs> I had a father named William, and now my, it's my middle name. So it's like a virus. Yeah, very common. Very common. If I know, I, I've been in England, and I'm like William. It's such a, a, a British kind of name. Oh yeah. To them, it's even more normal. But. Well, Billy Brent. Billy Brent. <laughs> Billy Brent's good. Do it now. Here's the thing. Uh, you got a movie coming out, yep. so you're you're probably God. If you're talking to us right now, yep. it's the darkest time in your career. It's a press junket, <laughs> and um. Here's the thing. We appreciate you being here. And we had an epiphany while talking to another director about how awful this must be. Because, well, just going blindly into the world of podcasting, like, you don't know who the hell we are. Just going going through a press, you know, gauntlet in general. Well, it seems exhausting. me, really, you know, it's, 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 um, it's fun to be talking about movies and this movie in particular and i don't mean it like in a but you know it's such a get so many sides to it so it's like i mean today hasn't been as junkety as it as it has been which is literally you know just one after another you know yeah which is kind of but even that you know you just don't have time to think and it's just fun talking about the movie it's fun hearing people excited about it especially people who've seen it you know so that's i'm you know i'm not complaining (laughs) <laughs> well, it's it's also it's also sort of inherent of the job, right? Like it's something that you know, if you're good at it, it's only going to help you, you know, further down the road. You know, I'm from Kentucky, so it's Kentucky basketball is a big deal. Sure. And I remember, I don't know, ten years ago, a guy named Billy Gillespie had the job for two years, yep. and he really tanked it. He turned out to be a drunk and a, you know, he just turned out to be a mess. But he, um, I remember once. They inter- you know, in between at halftime, they'll interview one of the coaches really quickly and get a couple of sound bites from them. And they the the girl was like, Hey, so how do you feel about the first half? And he's like, Look, I'm here to coach. I'm not here to talk to you guys. Like, I'm not doing it. And he walked off. But it's like, I don't know, man. That's part of the job, especially at Kentucky. And then Calipari, you know, comes to the coach and it's 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 like, yeah, you can't, you gotta work with the press, right? You gotta work with like they're just trying to get the scoop and try, you know, it's, it's like, in it. so I hear you. Um, I don't think about it much, but I hear you. I thought, I've thought about that before. Yeah, definitely. No, that's a, that's a good thing. Uh, one day I'll have to translate that for Russell since he has no idea about <laughs> collegiate basketball. whatsoever. <laughs> I used to like to play basketball. I don't did, you, did you ever follow college basketball though? No, no. 
Because that's I feel like that's more of a specific thing and just amateur sports in general. But, you know, what's amateur sports? I, I don't know if I ever had dreams of going to a college. I might have had a favorite college team. <laughs> but I oh, never, don't I, play that <laughs> pity game with me. Where was it said you're from Alabama? Is that I'm from Mississippi. Oh, Mississippi. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So what I was talking about, like this dark gauntlet you got to go through is mostly the unvetted nature of current the current world of podcasts. I believe there are over 4 million active podcasts right now. And a lot of them are hacky. I mean, especially in like the world of horror. Yeah. We have a ton of them. And uh, I'm sure you're about to find out if you're just starting your tour. I mean, it's its own form of social media at this point. Kind of. But, you know, he mentioned, you, you mentioned if you're good at this, then you can actually help your movie. And I, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, that might not be true because who knows? We might have no audience at all. And um, no, I just mean in well, my, general, uh, yeah, being yeah, able yeah. to, you know, profiletize your production. Don't defend this podcast. You're going to give down. me nothing for alliteration <laughs> right there? No. I, <laughs> no. And what I, what I was leading to is that uh, today... My mission is just to keep you entertained. And I promise uh, we've both watched the film and we enjoyed it. And um, you've got an interesting movie with Orphan First Kill because, man, the horror culture, the community is so weird. And it seems like in, in like 2010, streaming got really strange. And the horror community got a little like uh, fractured in streaming. And every now and then you would have like, I don't know, movies pop up like, uh, what, what was the uh, movie about dementia, the found footage one that we love? The Visit? No, The Visit. The That's Visit good was one. good, but it was the one before that that just dropped on Netflix and then everybody kind of liked it. Like Grave Encounters was another one. And I don't know, it, the culture got weird. And Orphan... Are you talking about the woman that turns into a bird? No, but stop trying to spoil a movie (laughs) you can't remember the title to. And uh, (laughs) it was spoiled for me. Well, in 2009... Deborah Logan. um, Yes. Now I spoiled it. Okay. Now, in 2009, we were just talking about this. It was kind of the end of the video rental era. And I feel like Orphan had just, like, made a mark. Yep. And everybody kind of had this like soft spot. Although, I mean, I grew up with a lot of horror fans around me and it's a film that you wouldn't really come out and talk about. But once you noticed other people had seen it, yeah, you're like, oh, shit. Right. You're like, that movie should have never been good, but it was. Yeah. So, Brett, at that time, when the original Orphan came out, I was running a video rental store in Mississippi. I was like 22 and Orphan had just come out and it was huge and it got spoiled for me very quickly. Oh, that's too bad. And so I didn't see it until recently. (laughs) Yeah. So so I had it very, very fresh. I mean, we watched it back to back. And so it was fresh on my mind going into, you know, your film. And man, the Easter eggs and it's, you know, that you can tell that there's just a ton of thoughtfulness there and a lot of appreciation for the original. So like, you know, this thing had a big, you know, fan following. So you know, why has it a taken kind of so long and just be, you know, I'm taking that you are original fan of the uh, film. Yeah. I mean, definitely an original fan. And it did come out in a time like, you know, kind of the J horror stuff was done oh. and it was before kind of uh, found footage stuff, whatever. And and it sure. was in a bit of a, a, a bubble when it came out in 2009, sort of. But um 
I was definitely a fan of it. And wait, what was the first part of your question? Russell Art doesn't know. <laughs> I think he was complaining that somebody had spoiled Orphan for him and uh, told him that she turns into a bird. <laughs> That's exactly it. Nailed it. No, you said that. You said the question I was actually going to answer. Of course, I was a fan, but yeah. um, oh, what it takes so long. Yeah. And oh, yeah. How interesting that is or not, but you know. <laughs> I can imagine they didn't jump on doing it in 2009, you know, because it it made a lot of money, but not like box office crazy money. Yeah. But then, you know, looking back, they're like, oh, yeah, I'd like another one of those, I'm sure. But, but like you said, you know, it wasn't that bubble. It wasn't a weird time because it yeah. made, we looked it up. I think the budget was probably around 20 million, I think. Yeah. And I think it hit for about 70, 75, somewhere in there total. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's pretty good, but it it wasn't like that weird time because yeah, the J Horror stuff had really kind of well I'm gonna I'm going take a wild guess here and think that it's coming back now because we're living in the era of like requels where we kind of get like Scream is having a the biggest moment it's ever had. I think Scream right. Five made more money than the original. Yeah. And like Halloween is doing its thing. So now kind of seems like, hey, let's dig up some IPs. And yeah. I mean, God. You know, I, I do want to talk about your career because I think you're doing some of the hardest work here in like the horror industry. But goddamn, man, they couldn't have given you a harder sequel to work with. Yeah, because <laughs> you say, yeah, the, the one thing that doesn't match with that theory that you wrote, which is beautiful, by the way, mm -hmm. excellent work. Thank the only thing is with the intricacies of this movie is because the star of your film was a 10-year-old 15 years ago. Now yeah. she's in her mid-20s, and when she was 10, she was playing 30. Now she's 30 and has to play 10 and still 30. At well, the now same she's time. really got to sell it. Yeah. <laughs> so hey, that's the other thing of like, I don't know. Makeup, good luck. You know, I, I don't know. So it, that is its own you know, bag of snakes there. So how did you deal with that, Brett? Well, first, I mean, circling back a bit, it's like, I bet after a couple of years, she became a teenager and they're like, well, we can't make the movie with her after a couple of years. And then Dark Castle got the rights back and it took them years and years to get the rights back. And they got the rights back about, I don't know, four or five years ago. And then they got the movie going about three years ago when I came on board and then we made the movie, you know, um, had all that time that passed. And Isabel not become an adult who had, I think, a different appreciation for the character. Um, I don't know. I, you know, it would have been it would have been a young actress and just a complete reboot and, and reimagining. But she really wanted to still play the character. And then when I met her, she looked, you know, she looks like when I was 12, when I was 24, I looked like a different person with her. She just looked like a sized up version of herself yeah. as a kid almost. So it seemed like, and the most important thing is that she wanted to do it. Like she was super passionate about, she's like, that's my character. So if I can, if there's any way to do it, I want to keep, you know, uh, telling the story of this character. So, um, and I'd done a film where I'd made a guy who was like six feet tall, seemed like he was like seven feet tall. <laughs> and so I did a lot of those tricks in the other direction. So I knew, I knew how it worked. And then, and then I've done a lot of, situations where you know you're trying to you're making an actress look beautiful and so those same tricks you just kind of amp them up instead of trying to make her look 
young and beautiful. I'm making her look like a child, you know, sort of. Yeah. And um, so, and a lot of the people on the crew, like, that's what ins- like kind of inspired and got everybody pumped about making the movie. One, it was the first movie back for a lot of us from COVID. And, um, and then this, the idea of like, yeah, can we pull this off? Which makeup department, special effects, you know, color, the camera, actors, everybody's like, yeah, your job's different. Like this is going to be a unique experience. And then having her being so like pumped up and excited about doing it made it like, okay, for everybody to not walk on eggshells and to be like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to figure out, you know, like ways to make this work. And I'm excited for all those people. They're all in Canada, mostly for them to see the movie. Cause I mean, they don't, you know, they didn't know how it was going to turn out. So um, it'll be interesting to hear back from them. Man, it's pretty incredible because it's kind of like the end of using real fire or something where it's like, we don't need the real actress. I, God, me and Clark were just talking about that Dolly 2 program where like AIs are eventually just going to take over the art industry. And I mean, right now we have like deep fake technology. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, dude, how how tricky is it coming out with a movie like this? When you know everybody in the audience, the first thing they're thinking of is, can he make it believable? Well, I mean, for one thing, you know, we know she's 30, right? So we know the character is 30. And and then the beginning of the movie is is we're with Lena. We're with her, no makeup, no pigtails, like like her raw version. So you're introduced to like the, you know, you see behind the curtain immediately. We're not trying to trick you. And then we're showing her try to trick other people. And what I found was people who watched even early cuts of the movie, um, they'd watch it and then they'd come back with thoughts and ideas. And I'd be like, well, but wait a minute. Did you buy her in the movie? And they're like, oh yeah. After a couple of minutes, I didn't even think about it. Yep. Because, you know, we know that Superman can't fly and we know that Spider-Man changes his, the way he has webs, you know, every, like there's a million things that we, that we own into, that we own up and, and like buy into. And so, and also there's, there's no, there's no solid substitute for talent. Yeah. And that's a big thing. Like with her, she just brings it, man. Well, and yeah, you're just I, invested. So as a, I'm a more hacky horror fan, I like uh, franchise films and I like genres and I like playing in them. Clark is more of like a, I don't know, indie kind of guy. You like ideas. I like those things too. I just well, don't get tattoos of them on my God. thigh. I do. Yeah, not have- right at 13th poster right behind you. I mean, that's pretty, you know. Well, we're in the same room. <laughs> we're in the same room and that's 99% his. So oh, okay. it's Colin Valor on my side. I just had the good side of the wall. No, but, you know, as a fan who really loved uh, the original, the only thing I, it's weird because, dude, as an audience member, I'm sitting there and me and him were having a conversation. We're like, how'd they do it? Are they using like in-camera tricks? Are they doing like perspective things? Is it like a deep fake? Are they uh, using digital? And it's like, why are we talking about this? If it was any other actress, I'd be bitching. Like why yeah. they recast her, and it's like I, it's it's hard to please horror fans, yeah. and that's why I'm like, I, well, stepping- I don't know if it's necessarily a pleasing thing. It's just more of a curiosity. It's like you know a craft. No, question. no, because From my thing. No horror fans come there with their blades out. 
You're I like come, ready. I come in there with a the clipboard taking notes. <laughs> no, and you know, the thing is, if a horror movie's not working, Clark will just get bored. If yeah. it's like a franchise film and it's like one of me, like I'm a cheerleader and and it starts taking a weird turn, you feel like violated. And it's like, what are you doing? So my only fear yeah. with this film yeah. Yeah. was that it was going to be kind of, hey, we could do it. We got the girl back and now she's going to kill some people at the end. And, uh, yeah. you know, I don't want to spoil this movie today. And we did cover it on the regular show. So I just want to tell people uh, it's fucking good. And you're, you know, something happened when we actually booked you on here. And I started looking at your your filmography. Yeah. And there's a particular movie of yours that I love. Like I legitimately like I I oh, my God. I got Oksana to be my accomplice in trying to gaslight one of our friends into getting him into the theater without overhyping the film because I thought it would like just blow his mind. Yeah. Because if I knew if I told him it was good, he was going to come in one to fight it. Of course. And tell me why. So, yeah, I mean, I went through this effort and yet I look, I look you up and I'm like, there are directors I love. And when I start to love them, I don't watch all their movies and I'm looking at yours. I think I've seen everything you've made. That's awesome. But it's not because of you, which I want to tell you right now, I'm a fan, but this is why I think you have the hardest job in horror because you're like a, you're, you're like a studio mercenary. So, you know, with, with horror fans, we love, we love an indie film, like all new people. And we want to put them on a pedestal and be like, I was there when Babadook came out. Sure. First wave. And you're, and you're the cheerleader forever. The second wave, they usually love to deconstruct why you like that movie. And they're like, it wasn't that good. And then there's like, you know, this is the, this is the regular conversation that horror films will have or horror fans. Yeah. And then there's the type of movie you make where it's like a movie theater movie. And it's like, you know, you're, you're a name, but like not enough that people are going in there with their like highbrow hat on, like, Oh, the new Lynch films out or something. Sure. And they come in and uh, I feel like you are the cannon fodder. Like people have, they don't hold back. Everybody will fucking love to tear down a like separation. Yeah. Or like, you know, and, and I'm like, dude, I do love it. <laughs> dude. And I, what I, want to say, I think people get lazy with the type of film that you make, because I think you navigate the genre, like every specific genre in an interesting way. And it's part of the reason why people got mad about the devil inside. And I'm like, dude, you're a motherfucker that takes chances with these things. And uh, I don't know. I just kind of want to touch on the movies in your uh, filmography. I warned Clark earlier because he knows when I get excited, I can go on tangents. It is true. So I I am sheriffing this as much as I can, Brent. (laughs) But, you know, uh, Russell's he's smitten over here. I am. Well, let me say one thing before you go into that, that that's something that is. It's interesting, but almost like um, if I go through all of them, you know, stay alive, devil inside, where um, the boy movies, the uh, separation, all of them, they're all independent films that have no distributor, you know, like devil inside wasn't made with Paramount. Devil inside was made independently for 750,000 bucks, edited in my dining room, and then we sold it to Paramount. You know, stay alive was made. It was supposed to be a million dollar movie, turned into two, turned into eight. And it became, it just gathered studio people, but it was made without a distributor. And then Disney bought it when we finished the film. 
Same thing with where, same thing. So people think I'm working for studios, but no, I, they're all independent films that get their distribution later. They just get big distributors, but those distributors are never involved during shooting. movies. Wow. Okay. Now I'm a fan. Yeah. I had no idea. I, cause you know, so here's the thing. Now you just got schooled. Well, here, son. like no, me, I'm just saying. me and Clark will even talk about it. And we kind of attribute like an LA persona to some filmmakers who kind sure. of, it's like uh, they, they call themselves a filmmaker. Yeah. Where a lot of indie guys, you kind of feel like they're like the underdog and yeah. you're just like, I want to be on their team. Well, that's look, man, that's, that's why we do this show. Exactly. Yeah. But now when we booked, when we booked Mr. Bell over here, what team did you think he was on? Did you think he was like a like underdog indie guy or like a st- somebody who had figured out how to work the studio system? Well, here's here's what you need to know. That oh, <laughs> I I am a very delicate but very valuable mushroom. Mm-hmm. I like to be in the dark and I like to be just fed shit. <laughs> so I white glove this show, okay. as you know. You turn the mics on, daddy's ready to go. <laughs> so what did you so, think? So Oksana tells me that if I just is like, okay, are we going through independently? Or are we going through um, you know, a publicist? Yeah. And if by virtue, if it's a publicist, I'm thinking, okay, it's it's part of the whole game. Because it's a and we've been getting a lot of contacts with the publicist, and that's great. But it's a separate thing from going independently. So I think by virtue of that, I'm just like, yes, I would probably lean on the studio side because it's going through a publicist. That's fair. Uh, you know, yes. to get a, a little behind the curtains, if we didn't DM the director of the film and be like, hey, you want to hang out for Which an is, hour? Yeah, I mean, yeah. That, that's kind of like how we do it. And, then, you know, we build relationships off that. Um, but yeah, no, that's that's incredibly interesting. Um, well, I mean, and if you want to go start at the top like you did, I mean, interrupt you on that. Mm-hmm. But it's like. Please, we would like you to talk and not wrestle all the time. So I'm, I'm down. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's like. Speaking for the audience right now. <laughs> I love you. Me and like Matt Peterman, who, who we worked together for over a decade and we wrote tons of things that never got made. And, um, and we did stay alive, dead inside and wear together. And, um, but we, you know, I, I, we were writing like studio kind of movies, like we were as uh, that never got made. And, and so it was like, well, we want to, I was like, I want to make movies. That's why I'm doing this, not to write scripts that never get made. I mean, um, and so Stay Alive was the idea we wanted to do. And so we, we had basically, we budgeted, I budgeted the movie at two million bucks. And, and we had a friend who had a visual effects company. And we we're like, would you throw in a million dollars of the two? in you know sweat equity and do the video game in this movie because it's going to be such a big part of the movie and he's read the script and he's like i'll give you the whole two million because i love it that much and then that turned into we went to a big producer named mick g who we were sharing offices with at the time and mick g mick g mick g mick g yeah oh mick g who's mick g he did the uh, terminator and he was a big music video guy got yeah charlie's angels and yeah the oc and whatever just a million things and um, and we kind of shared offices with him, so brought him the project, and then he in that turn, then it just kept snowballing, and then Spyglass, who did the new Scream, they ended up kind of being the top dog, and then we made the movie, 
So all of a sudden we were making our first little indie film, but it was like with all these studio, the ex head of Sony had just left Sony and it was one of his few independent films. So it was like, had all these kind of big wigs that are doing Superman and our little movie. And then when we got back in town, we cut together a trailer and then Disney was thinking of getting back into the, they hadn't done up horror films at Sixth Sense, which is kind of a horror film. And so they were like, let's bring back Hollywood pictures and do and release this movie. Really a kind of a mistake, but, um, but I'm not complaining. So then, and then. Hold on. Let me stop you there. You know, you mentioned it was kind of a mistake and you, uh, you pulled the rug out from under me mentioning that you were like an indie guy, because I had this idea that you have a career that is kind of defined by a struggle with production, like producers. Sure. If you're making these level of movies. Now, can I take a guess and say that Disney had a pretty uh, firm grasp on like getting their fingers in the pie? They, well, they did, but they didn't. They they just dictated immediately. They were like, has to be PG-13. You have to cut 20 minutes out. Yep. That, they yep. didn't really care what. Like, I literally sat in a screening room. Me and his name was Dick Cook. He was the chairman of Disney at the time. Dick yeah. Cook. Sat in the screening room and, you know, the hell of an watched this movie. He'd never seen a horror film before. And um, and then when we did the DVD and they said, hey, what are some scenes cut that were on the cutting room floor? Um, I showed them the scenes, like that 15 minutes, basically. Oh, no. And they were like, oh, would you do a director's cut? This is, we love this stuff. They had never seen it because they never saw the longer version of the movie. And then the producers was like, no, Brent, you can't put that stuff back in the movie. A lot of smart people were involved in cutting all that out. And then Disney was like, we own the movie now. We love it. You know, you have a week to do a new cut. So that's became the director's cut, which kind of put the movie back together. And so that's what, you know, like you look at these movies and, you know, even Orphan was like, and originally with Warner Brothers, it was a huge $25 million horror film 15 years ago. But now, you know, Warner Brothers ended up letting it go back to Dark Castle. Dark Castle has been gone for a decade. Now they're ready. They're back. They're refunded. They finally got the rights to this movie. And then we shot the movie with no distributor. And, and then when we, so this is like the bookends, right? Of, of the movies I've done. And we came back to town and then we screened it after we had a cut and Paramount was one of the companies, you know, one of the studios that was like, like, why is this even available? Like, why didn't Warner Brothers make it? And they knew why, because she was grown up and they figured it wouldn't be possible. So they bought the movie. And, um, you know, even like Devil Inside, we made that so off the system to the point where it was before paranormal movies, you know. And so we were going into prep on Devil Inside and then Paranormal One hit out of nowhere. And, we, and then all of a sudden we got all these phone calls because everybody knew we were making a similar style movie. And the guy that financed Orphan, um, he called me back then and he was like, so you you're doing this movie and they knew it was a found footage style movie and stuff. And it was like, I'm not, you know, I hadn't shown my agents a script, nothing. I was like, you're not going to, I'll call you in a year, you know, when we're done with the movie and done editing. And so, you know, and I edited that movie in my dining room and then we had no distributor, nothing. It was all a gamble of 750,000 bucks of a friend of mine's money. And then, um, you know, I, I mean, it's a crazy story because like Steven Schneider, you know, if you know who he is, he did, he does he all the paranormal movies, 
In okay. City. Yeah. He's produced all those. He produces all of them nights movies. Okay. Um, I'd never met him and him and Jason Blum. I brought the DVD to there to Jason's house. They'd only done insidious, you know, that's the only horror film Jason had done at that point. And, um, and it hadn't come out. And so, and, and paranormal had just come out, which they didn't make themselves, but they were there when they bought it. Mm-hmm. And so, and they kind of were like, Oh, we don't know. And then Steven was like, well, I, I love it. You know, let me come into the editing room and, and I was like, no, I showed it too early. And I was like, I'm not going to talk. I don't want to talk about it. And waited six more months. And then we were selling it to somebody else. It's kind of a rambling story. You can edit it. Oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and Paranormal 2 came out. That's how long it took, you know, for me to get the cut done. And I had never met Steven person, Steven, but he was, you know, like a fan. Like he was ready to talk about the movie. Mm-hmm. And I texted him. Sunday night, I was at karaoke or something. And I was like, man, you know, congrats on, on the movie. And he was like, oh, thanks, man. Whatever happened with Devil Inside? And I was like, well, we're going to sell it, you know, like, like, like a foreign distribution model. It would have kind of come out on DVD or something, maybe. And he was like, well, can I show it to somebody? And I was like, well, we're making the deal on Wednesday. It was Sunday night. And he was like, bring it to my house tomorrow morning. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell your agents. Don't tell anybody. And I'll, I'm going to show it to this one guy. Um, and take it to Lorenzo de Bonaventura's house. That's the guy. And Lorenzo was the head of Warner Brothers. He did the Matrix. You know, he brought in the Matrix. He brought in Harry Potter. And now he does the Transformers movies. And he's just one of the biggest producers in the world. And he he also is a lapsed Catholic. So he loves movies like that. <laughs> do a movie like that. Because he'd done like Constantine and um, Devil's Advocate. Oh. And they all did great. Like around the world because people love that type of movie. Yeah. And, uh, and so I brought it over to his house. Lorenzo has this huge screening room. He thought, you know, I was like a production assistant that was just bringing a DVD and he watched it. And I still, I, I have the text. I waited in this bar by myself and they had problem watching the DVD. And then eventually they figured it out. And, and then I heard nothing for like three hours. I went home and then, Stephen was like, oh, man, we're it was a good screening. I'll I'll call you later. My phone done. And I went home and I was like, oh, man, thank you for showing the movie to Lorenzo. I was like, it's I'm sorry it wasn't a home run, but I'm really happy that he watched it. And then he just sent me back a text and he said home run. And, and then he called me. He was like, can you be at Paramount tomorrow? And so then we went to Paramount the next day. I had to tell everybody, hey, I showed the movie. And then Paramount, and then I spent, you know, three months working on it with Lorenzo going to his house and screening a new cut every two weeks on my laptop on his you know, screening room yeah. and to where a point to where we we're like, okay, the movie's at a point, let's screen it for a studio. And then we screened it for Paramount and, um, and they, they made a deal and we had to buy out the other guy that was making the deal for us. Yeah. So it was like, and then all of a sudden it became a huge studio movie. Steven Schneider, who did the paranormal movies and Lorenzo de Bonaventura, who was doing the Transformers movies. But the movie was just us, you know, yeah. making it at home with complete no name cast, um, which is the thing, you know, it's like horror fans are like, we want something different. We want some. And then we give them something different. And they're like, nope. we don't want that. They don't yeah. want that. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no. So okay. Tricky. So when after they watched the movie, did they did you end up altering it a lot or is it pretty true to how you had it? Um, 
we worked on it for like three months with Lorenzo. And then we worked on it for a year with Paramount. Um, and we tested it constantly. It tested like through the roof for a year. Yeah. And, um, but the, and they, and, and it became a battle of two cuts. We had to, to the point to where the president of the studio had a cut and I had a cut and we screened it in Burbank in two full theaters of people side by side and then compared test scores. And, um, I mean, the, yeah, the politics of that movie, it was nuts because Paramount's claim to fame at that point were paranormal movies, yeah. which is pretty small for a major studio. I mean, you know, so they were kind of obsessed with that kind of thing. And, um, Who won? and <laughs> you know, um, I won a lot of stuff, most stuff. And then, then we had a big meeting and they kind of pulled the rug out from under us. And they're like, and we were like, you know, they're like, we want to do this. And it was like, what do you mean? We did it. We, we won that. You can't like, this is the whole point of doing it. And it was like, no, but we want to. And, and, yeah. and things like the ending, you know, it was like, that was something that didn't come up until the very last meeting after all the tests. Oh. Um, and the you know, ending. Dun, yeah. dun, dun, dun. I'm sure. How, how bad does that haunt you? Now, and you know what? Let me let me give some context before I put it that way. I I am a uh, rabid consumer of horror films, and you know the way I like to enjoy movies and horror. I like to cut everything up into subgenres, and then I like to group them together. And then ones that stand out to me are ones that did something different, or that you know they uh, this western had a gothic theme to it. Like we sure. do a dumb segment about that, but like, I love that stuff. So the devil inside, it's almost infamous for that ending. Yeah. And yet, yeah. you know, when I think when we're sitting around talking about movies and, you know, like Eduardo Sanchez, so we deal a lot with found footage here. Yeah. We, uh, we've programmed uh, exclusively found footage festivals. We've done live streams of them. We talk about them at nauseum. Run festivals, not just program. Yeah, we run them. Run, and, run the festival. Yeah. And your film stands out. It actually shows up in some literature that talks oh, yeah. about, yeah, found footage theory. And most of the time they use it as the truest versus like an audience pleaser kind of form. Because sure. if you're going to make a straight up found footage movie, the kind that Eduardo Sanchez would say doesn't exist because it would never be fun to watch. You got to have an ending like that. And yeah. man, I've gotten into some arguments about that. Clark, have, are you familiar? Like, do you remember it? So I saw it theatrically. Oh, no. But I don't remember. <laughs> okay. It's, it's <laughs> abrupt. There's a climactic. It's almost like Monty Python with Holy Grail. There's a yeah. climax. Car crash? Yeah. Yeah. I remember. Now, I think you're a victim of your own success here because you made a movie that people were captivated with. And you're you're coming up to the top of this roller coaster peak, and then they're like, "Get off!" And you you feel like, "Wait, what the fuck? I want to see this through." And me as a, a elitist fucking found footage fan, I'm like, "Well, no. What do you mean? There was a wreck. Who knows where this footage went now?" Yeah. So this is why I appreciate you as a filmmaker, and I'm I'm upset that I, I didn't know you by name, because sure. honestly, looking through your filmography. There are not a lot of directors who I've seen all of their films. Actually, my favorite directors, I almost avoid them. Yeah. Uh -huh. 
Yet with but, you, but you saw Ghost of Mars. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and you saw Vampires Les Muertos. Yeah. <laughs> no. So okay. Yeah. Okay. So the, the Devil Inside. The ending is prolific. Um, was that was that your call, or did you have a different one? Well, originally it was it was um, it was greenlit as a big movie, like a fifteen million dollar movie, and it was more like a flatliners in the world of this exorcism school. And and then when we decided to make it like Blair Witch style, um, you know, we focused smaller. But one thing in greenlighting the seven hundred fifty thousand dollar version was the guy paying for it was like, I got an idea. What do you think? What if we end the movie, the car crash? Because there was a whole third act, you oh, know, sure. where they go yeah. in this big exorcism. And, but it's exactly what you'd expect, sort of, which is what everybody kind of wanted, yet they didn't want what they expected. So since we were doing it independently, I was like, yeah, why not? Like, it's an independent film. We can do whatever we want. And then when we sold it to Paramount, we went back to Rome. We shot a bunch of variations of endings and stuff. Um, and we tested them all and like, they, they didn't test as well as ending on the car crash. And so we're like, fuck it, let's just, we're going to go with the car crash. You know, sometimes that happens, you know, the end of Blair Witch is kind of like that. It's abrupt. Just, you know, somebody standing in the corner and it's like, what happened? Yep. I didn't love that by the way, when I saw that movie, but I, you know, I got it. And so, but to add insult to injury with that movie, right. Is when it says, if you want to learn more about this movie, go to this website. That was never in the cards until the very last meeting. And the president of the studio was like, I have an idea because we were trying to figure out scenes that would either be taken out of the movie. We were negotiating that they were more character scenes Mm -hmm. or would they be on like the DVD extras or something? And the idea was like, okay, they're going to be in the DVD extras, these scenes. Why don't we just like at the end of you go watch like ID channel, little safe, more information on, you know, child abduction go to this website yeah so we put that up and they were you know they were they had just they were just coming off of these really interesting paranormal activity marketing like strategies and seeing people in green you know in a cameras infrared cameras freaking out watching the movie y'all. so it was like okay i see that's interesting we put that up after the credits and he was like no we put it up at the end of the movie and um and so that's what we ended up so that's what we did and but we never tested it. We never just said, let's double check and see what the audience, if they freak out or not. Because ending it abruptly is one thing, right? That's like, oh shit. Yeah. Oh, it's over. And then to go, by the way, and Pete and, and what Paramount thought was like, we're gonna break the internet. Everybody's gonna go to this site. And it's gonna be so fun. They're gonna get to continue the process, the movie. It's gonna be interactive. It's over, but still, but people thought you want more money for me to go exactly. to a website, which God. was not at all what it was. So but he said after the fact, president, he was like, well, I meant put it at the end of the credits. And we're like, oh. you, know, you, met, you said <laughs> at the end of the movie. Fucker. Hell and no. he, like five years, 10 years later, like five years ago, um, I met with him for the first time forever. And he apologized. He brought his entire staff out to apologize to me in front of everybody for doing that to the movie. Wow. And then he called my agent and he's like, I just want to apologize to you for ruining Brent's movie. <laughs> And um How, how'd that feel? It was okay. And then I went <laughs> back to meet with him a second time and I was like, he's the same guy. I don't yeah. want to work with him. <laughs> well, how how do there you, you feel about it? Do you like the way that the movies remember? So what what was what was that peacocking about? Oh god. <laughs> what? 
What what was he peacocking? What what was he was obviously you think so do you still think that was some sort of play, some sort of move he was making? Like some sort of sort of strategic apology. No, um, I think he was in a position where his goal was to make movies like it, um, but independently. And and he's ne- he never has. But at that point, you would have thought he would. He got a huge amount of money to build a, co- a new company that I don't think exists anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, he never made any movies. And this has been now 10 years. But um, but it wasn't so much that. It was, it was when I went back and then I remembered how he would negotiate story points and scenes and not listen. And then it'd be like, I hear what you're saying, but I, I want to still try this. And he just was like, didn't listen to the filmmaker. In my, in my case, me. And I was just, I just don't like, this is why it was such a nightmare trying to get that movie. And a lot of people, anybody who was at the screening we did for Paramount and 300 people before, when we sold it and the, that movie versus the movie that came out, like it's, it's just, it, you know, it was, it was better before Paramount dicked around with it for a year. Yeah. I mean, I, I had completely forgotten about the website. But just hearing you tell it, I'm like, oh, God, I know how I would feel. Yeah. Well, you don't even have any time to reflect. You're just given like it, it feels like a commercial, even though I know it's not. And yeah. My my instinct would be like, oh, fuck you, dude. Oh, that was the instinct. <laughs> like, I mean, people throwing stuff. I mean, it, it's, you know, it hey, was crazy. Now, if I was in a the theater and people started throwing shit, that would be a memory. I would well, it is a great memory. I yeah. much prefer, and it's like orphan first kills like this, right? I much prefer something like I looked at it. I'm not going to say what the movie is, but, um, and I normally don't even look at Rotten Tomatoes or whatever, but we're looking at it because there's all these reviews yeah. and stuff coming out. And there's another movie that's just coming out soon or something. And I'm like, well, let me see. And the first review was like the most generic, you know, it was like, I might even say what it is, but. And I, I'm, I would much rather people get pissed and debate and talk about the movie, hate it or love it, than just kind of be down the middle and forget it. Thank you. And sometimes that means the movie blows up in my face or whatever. And sometimes it, it, and sometimes it doesn't even get to that point where it gets to be that interesting. But, um, and like with Orphan, you know, it's the same thing. We knew, you know, people are going to love it or hate it. And um, Brent, do not do Brent, not do no. not do what you're about to do. I'll turn your damn mic off now, Brent. I you don't know it, but you just co-signed the way that I rate movies. No, if anything, he co-signed my mentality on life. Now Clark thinks <laughs> that everybody in an audience at a movie theater is a uh, judge and jury of said movie. He actually brings a gavel to the theater and <laughs> will strike it when he thinks the movie has done something offensive. Me, on the other hand, I think people should rate movies on how entertained they were. And he just articulated that the worst fate for a fucking film is for it to just wash over somebody. And then you turn to him and you're like, what'd you think? And they're like, I don't know. Well, what do you want to eat? Yeah. Yeah. I don't disagree with you. Of course. (laughs) Of course. That is a well-balanced argument. That is is full of solid topic, by the way, I can tell. (laughs) Well, because Brent, um, we're about to take you to to Lulu. Hold on. Here, let me feel it. (laughs) So when I rate a movie, now Brent, you're on my team right now. Don't abandon yes. me. Clark can't hear me. I turned off his headphones. He's about to <laughs> jump Don't shit. abandon me. Okay, so a five-star movie, that's something I loved. I had a great time with it. Might not be the best film. Might even have some bad acting. Might have made me laugh. 
at the film, which, you know, I never feel good about. But like if I'm engaged, man, I'm going to tell people I'm excited when people bring it up. Because it's because your whole your whole scale, but there's a fatal fatal flaw. Hold on, I'm not done. Which we, I know, but it's based upon emotion. That's fair because it could be very different experience depending on where you watch it, who you're with. Yeah, exactly. I sure. I agree. But which a is one, why we're pro theater until the day we die. Yeah. Fuck yeah. the Russos. <laughs> yeah, Russo no, brothers can suck. Here's the thing: a one is a movie that when people bring it up, it actually inspires like a heated conversation. Which is another thing Brent just said. Like, you know, people talk about it. The devil inside. Oh, the movie with the fucking advertising at the ending. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. that's powerful. But then the movie that washes over and we're talking about what drive through we're about to get. That's a three star for me. I think a three star is the fucking no bueno. No, but see, that makes zero sense. No, because if it's, it's not no bad. Bu- but if it's boring, that <laughs> to me, being boring is your fatal flaw here. Well, I mean, un, yeah. un give, give me something. Okay, if it's boring, I would say that's it's bad. I'm talking about Correct. a movie, a movie that's just okay. And it's like when somebody asked me about it, I'd be like, "Eh, what's something?" That's else? bad for me. Like there are movies <laughs> that I love that are absolute shithouse shows, but it works. All right. Well, Brent, uh, with yes. the caveat of I've agreed with you this whole episode, who do you agree with now, me or Clark? Well, I feel like you guys are probably extremes on the issue i'm not sure right like and i'm probably somewhere in the middle i mean because i think like there can be a movie that works that's also really unique and interesting um like i've seen something like joker you know like to me is like you know he's dancing he's wearing the makeup but it feels believable but it's also the biggest comic book movie in dc history so like that's amazing to me you know um it just doesn't happen often it's usually it's usually, you know, they're just kind of lame and huge or they're really interesting, but they're tiny and nobody ever sees them. Or I don't know. I think there's a there's a great middle ground that is the is the sweet spot. It's just rare that films land there. For sure. That makes you know, sense. Billy Brent, I'm yes. so shocked by the, the man you are. I was <laughs> not expecting this. And to hear that you are like an indie dude who's just like been able to sell his movies. Yeah. I really, man, the culture's got to change because I'm guilty of it too. Like when early year in like January, when films come out, we used to have a thing where uh, the first horror movie that landed that year, we just knew it was going to be bad. Sure. And we would go there with, that's kind of a caveat, but you know, I don't, I guess we just imagine people that get put out by Paramount are all like kind of like affluent old money no talent kind of people. Yeah. Now, okay. and let's get away from that. Um, no, I, I do. I, I, if you'll forgive me, I have one, I, I want to know about, cause Brent, you've been in the, you know, you've you okay. <laughs> You're it, like having is, a mild stroke. It is hot in this room. <laughs> is it? <laughs> it is hot in this room. My feet are sweating. Um, <laughs> yeah, bro, we're up here in the Bay area and you know, no, no homes have air conditioning. Uh, but, you know, because it's, we don't typically need it, but uh, yeah. we'll, we'll have a couple of days where it gets a little muggy. Oh, yeah. Uh, it gets a little uncomfortable up here. So, oh, yeah, we're fighting. Through. You need it. But Brent, Time you've been it. you. Yeah. I know I'm with you. I've got my I've got mine in my room going. Mm-hmm. I got a window unit. So, hey, that was my four hundred dollars, baby. <laughs> the only piece of furniture <laughs> I have in my room. <laughs> um, but Brent, you've been, you know taking studio notes for nearly two decades now. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I would like to know, like, have you seen, like, what do you think that the notes have been pretty similar in that amount of time? Or have you noticed a change in the notes based upon, like, the change of audience or the change of, you know, you know, who are they trying to draw to the theater now or maybe opposed to like a VOD, just anything, any sort of, you know, because now, you know, analytics run the world. So like, I'm just interested to see what, from your perspective, the notes have been like for running time, for example, um, you know, I feel like, you know, you mentioned that, you know, the first stay alive, the runtime, they wanted you, you know, under 90 or to, mm-hmm. you know, take 20 minutes off, try to get that 90. I feel like studios want to keep you there for at least two hours now. Well, you know, the reason they would do that before and a lot of systems in filmmaking, they're antiquated based on film and film reels. And so you work in reels because it used to be you would deliver these huge spools of reel that would play as a for projectionists for a movie, every 15 minutes was a reel. And, and so you work in these clips of a movie and you're editing or something, but you don't have to, I mean, because we don't need to do that anymore. And similarly, like it used to be a movie should be under 90 minutes because a 90 minute movie versus a two hour movie can play an extra time in the course of the day. So you can squeeze one more movie play in there. It doesn't matter anymore, right? Yeah. Either somebody's going to turn on the movie and they're going to, keep watching it or they're going to turn it off whether the movie's 90 minutes or 120 minutes is less of an issue if you're watching it at home but in a, in a theater Damn. with with like we're, we're these, dumb dude we never thought i never considered that i know i'm bad at business <laughs> <laughs> oh my god but no it's as simple as that right but it's that's not the case anymore you know like it's 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 Students, uh, theaters can play whatever they want. It's just like they're they're projecting their streaming box essentially, and the amount of time doesn't necessarily matter because they can change that. And then watching at home doesn't matter. So, I think the but the funny thing is, Hollywood executives who have been cooking around in the industry for 10, 20, 30 years, they still think that way. So. You have a movie and the inciting incident doesn't happen on page three or, you know, or if or or if the, uh, you know, the first act break is not at 18 minutes in. Like they give that obvious note. Yeah, I think we need to get to this you know sooner. And it's like, well, do we? Maybe. Yeah. Um, but maybe not because who really is keeping score anymore? Yeah. But I feel like it's like superhero movies and stuff. I mean, they're like two and a half, three hours. Right. Yeah. That's just crazy. Unless. And those stories typically are just kind of yep. you know, just going, but nothing groundbreaking happens to where, like, I remember, I think that the, the Harry Potter movies are amazing and they're inventive and extremely kind of well done. But in the height of those movies, I would sit down and watch the first 30 minutes and then I go eat dinner at the theater and then come back and watch the last 30 minutes. And it's like, I didn't miss a thing because they're so long, you know? Yeah. But, you know, it's kind of an exciting time because there is a lot more flexibility with with things like that, you know, and. But I, I, yeah, I don't think yet that the executive culture has quite. I don't know why they haven't figured it out. I mean, if you, horror, especially you look yeah. at Carpenter did Halloween by himself. 
And then they start to take it over and do different things. And he's like, okay, I'm done. And you look at all these movies, the best ones in the space are when the, when the filmmakers are in control beginning to end, you know, because it just takes just like with Devil Inside, putting that thing up at the end, maybe, or like with boy two, like, you know, the doll was never in the script. Was he ever supposed to move or his eyes supposed to, or nothing? I don't know if you ever saw that or know about oh, it. I did, but but that was that happened. Movie was locked and done. The production company Lakeshore went bankrupt, and so STX, who for the first movie wasn't involved, all of a sudden their execs were all completely in charge of the movie, and they took it upon themselves to go through the whole movie and do these visual effects. And God. they called me and said, "This is what we're going to do, and we're going to do another sound mix. Open up the, and actually." My sound mixer, who I've done six movies with, he's like, hey, did you know like, we're doing another sound mix? And I was like, no. He was like, well, apparently they've made changes to the movie. And so I called the producers and they're like, Brent, we don't have any involvement in the movie anymore. And so I went and watched the sound mix. And that was the first time I saw throughout the whole movie all these new moments that it was never in the script. Um, Brent, hold on. Let me stop you there. Yeah. I... Uh... Earlier, I had uh, made a quip about gaslighting a friend. We used to have a third chair on the show, and he um, was so contrarian with everything that he had a, a thing we called can't wait to hate. <laughs> and he would just hate everything that people loved. He, he really railed against A24 and like highbrow horror, and I've kind of taken over that spot. He's, a, he's an aged hardcore kid. What are you going to do? So I wasn't joking. I did, go, <laughs> I did go out of my way to... I was, I was acting around him trying not to be excited. And the film that I was trying to trick him to go see was The Boy. Now, um, the first one. Yeah. And are, are you on a time limit? Do we have to cut you loose soon? Because I kind of want to dive into this. Well, no, yeah. Let's keep going. Keep going. All right. If you got to go, don't be shy. Because I, I just had to let you know yes. how much I fucking love The Boy. Now, I mean, seriously. Um I like I had mentioned earlier, I love to put horror films into like new weird subcategories that I've made up. And one of the ones that I was really jazzed about was I was calling them pretty girl ghost stories. No, pretty girl ghost mysteries. It's been a minute. And my whole idea was that haunted house movies had shifted after the ring into being like a new kind of millennial story where it was mostly like a single mom and they were always young and pretty. And uh, their significant other could usually take the fall, like kind of fill that horror quota of like a death. Yeah. But like, much like the ring, you would get to follow this pretty lady around and kind of solve this paranormal mystery. One of the tropes that was most annoying about this genre was that they always wanted to do the right thing and befriend the ghost and be like, you're free now. And then the ghost would always be like, no, I'm a ghost. I want to kill you. Or I'm <laughs> yeah. a curse. Or like you weren't listening. I'm bad, right? And um or not who you think I am, a different ghost. Yeah, like yeah. you, you, you were you were paying enough attention to paint yourself the hero, but you didn't grasp the whole story. And it's like, man, these are really cool. And they were making a lot of them. And then when the boy came out, I'm like, holy shit, we're doing a pretty girl ghost mystery again. <laughs> and I'm like, and I could I picked it up because you're you're a clever dude. And I I saw the nuance and I saw the plane with the tropes, but I'm like, oh. Maybe it really is a doll thing, right? Like it's not just a ghost. Like maybe the doll's really alive. And uh, if you haven't seen the boy yet, you're doing yourself a huge disservice. 
But I, I just wanted to say in the theater I was in, it's probably the first and last time that a row had thrown popcorn into the air upon the reveal. And me <laughs> as like a hacky franchise horror fan, I was like, holy shit, what a great mashup here. Such yeah. an interesting idea. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not joking. Really tried to trick a friend. Love this movie. I have it next to me just to be a talisman for this interview. And um, I also brought Clark's uh, favorite of your selection, which is Stay Alive. Fair. Yeah. Actually, it's a <laughs> rental from a mom and pop shop from somewhere. So that you never roll back. And it's the oh. uncut one. I didn't realize that all that shit had been put back in. So maybe we got to watch this. Wait, later. what? Yeah, yeah. When he was talking about the director's cut earlier, it's the mom's superstore. Oh, was they? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Hell. Yeah. Did you, but, you didn't rent that. You bought it from something that used to be a rental. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, as a uh, lame collector, I leave all of those stickers on here. Oh, I'm, you should. It's yeah, like you got it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway. Such a fucking huge fan of the boy. Like, I loved it. I had to make sure that my Blu-ray had the slip cover on it. I thought Brahms was incredible. He didn't look like a dolled up fucking Chucky doll or something. He Can looked I tell like, you, I, like I, an actual. I think about walking into the ocean on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, with rocks in my no, pocket. So uh, as a very uh, militant fan of the boy. No, the boy's great. The one critique I would get all the time was that death. And then that's actually like. Now, you don't have to answer this, but uh, me and Oksana, what the hell were we? We were doing something. And we're like, wait, is that a literary res- reference to like Jane Austen or something? It's very highbrow. And I'm just going to say that. I'm going to answer for you. It's very highbrow. If you didn't get it, it's because you don't fucking read. So read a book. Then you'll understand the book. Yeah, and you got it because someone told you. Continue. <laughs> yeah. Because <that's> the <laughs> podcast. Here, and so when I went into The Boy 2, I felt betrayed. I had all these emotions, Brent. Betrayed. Angry. I said, what the fuck happened here? So when you were telling me that, just let me know. Man, the fact that they monkeyed with that movie, they fucking buried that movie. Because I was an enthusiastic... Like This is, this is probably the fear that uh, people have about um, Orphan 2, right? Sure. Kill. It's like, oh, you got, you got a passionate audience out there. Well, the boy, too, they fucking did it to me. I was like, yeah. what the hell is this magical bullshit? Yeah. The, you know... We could have told a handful of stories with that movie, you know, um, and initially we thought that it was going to be the sequel was going to be about Brahms, you know, in the walls. And I thought, you know, we've created a new slasher killer, exactly. which is always the goal, you know, is yep. to create iconic things. That's that's the hope. But since it wasn't a company like Blumhouse that, you know, knew when they had something cool and then fed the monster of of horror fans they just kind of backed off and it's like, we're not going to make another like movie. And that year turned into two years, turned into three years, turned into like, I don't know if it was four years, but in that time frame, the doll became kind of, it stayed in the zeitgeist and, and it became, you know, people were comparing him to Jared Kushner and all this stuff back then. <laughs> and so then I got the call and they were like, we want to make another boy movie, but we want to focus on the doll because everybody loves the doll. And the studio, and then the paradigm for the control of the producers in the studio shifted. Um, and the studio was like, we have two caveats. We have, is, it has to be supernatural and um, uh, possessed kids are an underserved market right now. In- <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yes. And so, but to me, 
To be fair, I've been saying that for years. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) And to me, like when we first started talking about it, when talking about the basic story that the movie became, like the first, the pitch started with, and it was me and the writer, like the first movie was like a slow burn and it's really cool we got away with it. But it's like, and, and, and that people were, you know, like the movie after the fact. But with this, it's like, now we want to take the gloves off. Like, because, you know, in the first movie, the boy's doing pranks and stuff. He's not like yeah. terribly, the stakes are not that high in a way. And um, so I'm like, let's we take the gloves off and go crazy, like with killing people. And right? And so the opening scene, you know, this child and this family dies this horrible death, this young baby. And and they're like, no way, we're not killing a kid um, in the opening <laughs> scene. But I'm sitting next to Roy Lee, and Roy Lee's the producer of It, The Grudge, Godzilla. And Roy, It came out that week, the movie It, and broke every box office record. And they killed Georgie in the opening scene. Yep. And at the same time, um, uh, Quiet Place had just blown up. They kill a kid in the opening. And it's PG-13, and they kill a kid in the opening scene. It's what we want. (laughs) Kill the kids. Yeah, kill the kid. and. And they're like, we're not killing a kid in the opening scene, you know? Okay. And it just turned into a a series of small battles on that movie. And the answer always was a version of that for every moment that everything, every edge of it got whittled off every. And so to me, you know, like I still think there's, you know, a whole other story in that, you know, because we've never told the story of the guy in the walls. Mm-hmm. But um, it's it's fascinating how quickly, and you know, we've talked about it. And then with like a movie like Where, which they kind of let me do my thing on that. But the only reason they did sort of is because by the time I was done with the cut, and they got really quiet, it was because at that point Film District was the distributor. If you remember, Film District was around for like five years. And they went under. And so then any movie that Film District had lost its distribution. Yeah. And um, and like Oculus was one of those movies and it got picked up really quickly by Blumhouse and Blumhouse was going to pick up where and because they picked up Oculus the same weekend. Anyway, it didn't work out. And so that movie just got forgotten. But I mean, it was like it should have been, you know, a big release werewolf kind of um horror film but nobody's ever really seen it damn man i you know is it worth it because you know i think you've you've been lucky with how many movies you've made that are in the theater you know and it's a different world yeah it's like a double-edged blade because you know i'm sitting here and i'm like when when the boy two came out i just thought you know maybe uh the money went a different direction and it didn't really matter that much, but like, I don't know, man, I feel like I, uh, I've been a bad fan. <laughs> like I, sh- I feel like I should have had your back more because you know, dude, when I went into the boy too, I'm like, what are we going to do here? Yeah. We know we're going to be with that dude. What is he like a ex guitarist from a metal band who was playing around with the Ouija board and like a ghost came out. Now he's in the wall. And I'm like, you know, because now that I, you know, I've looked at your work, I can, I expect some meddling in the genre. 
And yet I feel like your your blessing of being in the theater has also been like the biggest hurdle. Oh, yeah. It's it makes it complicated. You know, it just does. And I'm not complaining. And it, I mean, it's a good problem to have, maybe. But it it it, it, it makes the process so much more difficult. And that's why I, I, I say something like Joker. And I'm like, how the fuck did they get Joker through Warner Brothers? And have him dancing for, you know, five minutes in that movie and, and, and the studio not go, cut the dancing out. Like, why would he be dancing? <laughs> well, especially to that song, right? Who, yeah. uh, it's Clark's favorite uh, artist. What's his name? <laughs> yeah, Gary Glitter. Gary, Gary Glitter, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, that's the thing. I feel like, you know, if you come out and you become an indie darling, then they'll roll out the red carpet and they'll be like, dude, Brent, do what you want. Like it's your show now, but yet you've been constantly like performing above board yet. The, the platform you get is one that's constantly fighting you. Yes. So I just want to apologize on uh, all horror fans. (laughs) And you know, here we got to let you go. And I thank you for all the time we've, we've kept you here for, but have you ever thought about like, well, maybe, um, you know, social media is pretty big. You're a handsome dude. You could uh, just turn yourself into a brand and maybe just do a self-distributed movie. Yeah. You clearly got the talent. Have you ever thought about just kind of turning your back on the studio thing? Or do you think they'd never let you back in? It's not that. Um, I mean, I've just finished a movie that we don't have a distributor. I mean, we've never self-distributed, I don't think. But um, Would you know, have you ever even considered? Well, sort of. It's just it's like it, it always turns into you know it's like i know all these people and then and and they'll and then paramount's like yeah we'll buy the movie and what you know am i gonna say no or and then exactly yeah and and something like you know orphan i think has worked out really well and um but because of covid the studio didn't have the bandwidth to micromanage the movie even if they wanted to you know, yeah. so what we created um, and because the world was so scattered this last year or so, it kind of gave us more freedom to take more chances in a way. All right. Well, and, what uh, I think yeah. what I was fishing for there was, are we ever going to get like a pure vision, like a pure Brent unmonkeyed with no productions on there? No telling you what to do. And it, I'm starting to feel like that might be kind of true with Orphan. Am I overstepping there? No, no. I mean, it's not with Orphan. I mean, Orphan was definitely still um, crazy. <laughs> Brent, all I want, I just want you to have your pure vision. And, you know, <laughs> maybe what you got to do is have a fake director name. Be like Montanus yeah. Bran or something. Yeah. And be like, who's this weirdo? And then you just drop a film. And you want him to go spaghetti western with it? Maybe. Because I, I could see it on his face when I asked him. Yeah. It's like if if people are there willing to help and every fucking all the hundred thousands of people who think they're filmmakers are trying to get in to Paramount, why the fuck would you ever not? Like, why sure. would you ever say no to them and do it? And in my head, I'm just thinking because I know how horror fans are and they want their darling. And it's like he's been invisible in kind of the like middle range wide release, which what? is the weirdest thing to even say. Well, they also think, you know, he's a writer. You know, he got in the movies, you know, writing. And so, you know, creative. And that's what I'm saying. Like, I want to see a direct, like, 
nobody fucking with him. Like the movie made the way he wants. No edits. No weird uh, websites at the end of the film. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, it's um, a weird thing. Is I've always stayed out of any kind of public eye. Like I've never gone to festivals and done panels, and I didn't. I don't do. I haven't do podcasts that often. You know, the movie comes out. So it's like we appreciate someone it. like you, like you, you <laughs> didn't know who I was sort of oh. because I've never been like, I've just keep my head down and make movies. I've not, never like injected myself into the community, you know, and, and, and believe me, that carries over into every uh, facet of my life. Like I just, I'm in my studio and I work on movies and I write them, I edit them, I produce them and, and direct them and variations of all that. And so, you know, it's on me too, that I, I never, so then you guys just shit on me because you don't know who I am. You think, like you said, like what you do, but because nobody knows my story, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. But well, um, so I'm going to, you know, I'll try to make some more rounds. And <laughs> I don't know. You know, now that you say it, I kind of love that you don't do it because the people that are <laughs> out there in the flashing lights and taking pictures, it's kind of yeah. like, those aren't your guys. Why are you here? No, no. And clearly you're our guy, dude. And I, 100%. people, I, God damn it. I hope people like open their eyes and jump on IMDb and just look up all your films. And like, cause honestly, I think you got the hardest role in all this man dealing with producers. I can't even, God, imagine if somebody told us like how to edit our show or like what to do on this. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even like, it's so, it's such a like wild experience. And well, I, I, I think the best way to close it is that, uh, Brent, I owe you um, a giant thank you uh, for saving me somewhere around 2008. Probably I was very bored at my grandparents' house <laughs> and uh, Stay Alive came on HBO and saved me from that. <laughs> um, and I and I have been a big cheerleader of that fan that, of that film also and mainly because it took place in New Orleans and I grew up very close to New Orleans. How it's, close? Uh, about an hour, about hour and a half, two hours. What is it? Where in Mississippi? Um, in Hazelhurst or just south of Jackson. But then I went to uh, Southern Miss and Hattiesburg about an hour and a half away. Yeah, I know Hattiesburg. Yeah. So I, I grew up going, you know, I know I know New Orleans very well. And Honestly, that was a time to where it. they had filmed a ton of stuff in New Orleans, but yeah. not a ton back in that time. I think they were probably starting a little bit, but yeah. it, it was it was still, you know, um, exciting to see like a, a, an area that I was very familiar with um, in New Orleans. And then, you know, the whole aspect of the video game thing. Sorry, I just had to get in there. About the I, I know I, I was waiting for it. I'm like, when do you guys? You wouldn't believe how in talking, you know, in, in, in making the rounds and stuff, how stay alive I mean it's um it's crazy how people talk about that movie. Yeah. Now, you know, or I have for a yeah. few years really, but it's it's nuts. Well, yeah, it was also, you know, of its time before its time at the at the same time. Because you know, video <laughs> games, you know, when was that? Two thousand six? Yeah. When that was released. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, we're we're in gaming, but now gaming has hit a whole new level I since mean, then. And it's we made that. They were like they wanted to cut all the video game stuff out, and they did cut a lot. Um, and you can't just put it back in because you have to develop it from a grid of it. And so they were like, uh, nobody's gonna watch people play a video game in a movie. But what's funny is like here we have Twitch now, and it's like 
you know, or things like it. Yeah. People watch people play video games. So stop that League of Legends stuff. Why? Yeah. Yeah. And there really aren't a lot of video game horror movies. No. There really aren't. So you you've kind of got a centerpiece on that mantle. <laughs> I don't know, man. William, uh, it's, it's William. I, I can't help it. <laughs> oh my First god. Thing. I want to call him Billy Brent, but Billy, you you stare at Billy me every Brent. Time. You know, I, uh, I just I mean, thanks for hanging out with us, dude. Yes. Thanks for I, having me. I really mean everything I said. I think you got like the thankless job of like being successful, which is the weirdest thing in the world. But you've completely won me over. Anybody who thinks we're like hamming this up for him or something. No. He's you're you're a fucking indie filmmaker. We're, we're, we're ride or die, baby. We're we're your cheerleaders till till the grave. And I appreciate it. Hey, in the season, in the in the uh moment in horror that we occupy, the yes. requel land. Let's get the boy back out there. Yeah. Get the, let's get Brahms back. <laughs> yeah. I'm not joking. I'm we we got we got some more uh more with the boy, possibly. I hope so. I mean, um, it got, you know, it got bought. Like it's the rights are with a different company. So it's like, okay. I don't know yet what the deal is. All right. Well, I'm going to cash in my crypto. I'm going to buy it back. Yes. Do contact it. you again. Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> hey, Brent, I love you, man. Sin- seriously. Uh, we really appreciate the time. Yeah. It was great. Thank you. Thanks, Brett. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Overlook Hour. And if you would like to hear more, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your podcatcher of choice is. And while you're there, go ahead and give us a rating and or a review, which is a very easy way for you to support this show uh, that we bring to you every week for years now, free of charge. And as always, you can find us on YouTube at The Overlook Theater, Instagram at The Overlook Theater, Facebook at The Overlook Hour, and Twitter at The Overlook Hour. Last but not least, you can send us your emails and tell us how much you like or dislike the show at overlookhour at gmail.com. And if you're nice, maybe we'll uh, read them on the show. I've been your engineer, Randy Statt. Please join me along with Clark, Russell, and Oksana again next time. Bye. <laughs>